Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news, banter, commentary, interviews, conventions, scene, reporting. I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly, editor-in-chief of The Beat, and I'm here at Baltimore Comic-Con. That's why there's lots of noise in the background. And I'm talking with the one, the only, the incomparable Carla Speed McNeil. Carla, how are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Uh, see? <laughs> no. Uh, uh, Carla, uh, very busy lady. Uh, you do uh, No Mercy with Alex DeCampi for Image. Uh, and you also work on Finder, which is your own long-running, award-winning, much-loved, acclaimed sci- uh, what do you call it? Anthropological science? Or you have a good name for it. Uh, Aboriginal SF, yes. which is a modified term from the 30s, I think, or Pops. I made that up and still think I looked it up somewhere. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, the old, the old science fiction fell into two camps. It was either the hard SF, where you actually had to have a physics degree to, to be allowed to write it, uh, or it was strange alien cultures, planet-bound stuff. You know, most of my strange alien cultures are, are human, but aren't they all? Right. Well, it's all a commentary on ourselves, isn't it? Most right. definitely. Yes. Um, how do you balance all this work? What's your working, you know? Well, mm, I think it's the main thing in my life that gives me satisfaction to begin with, but um, I'm very easily bored, and so I always want to be working on something. If there's always something in the back of my head, there's always something I can get out on paper. That, and I really love working with writers. I really love collaborating. Even though I love to write, um, I've enjoyed very much working with other people who, you know, do the backbone of the stuff, and then I, you know, I do all the acting, as it were. Yeah. So, you know, I'm doing No Mercy, but I'm also doing fill-in issues on a horror comic called Harrow County by Cullen Bunn and, uh, and uh, Tyler Crook. Is That's that at awesome. uh, Dark Horse? That's also? at Dark Horse. Yes. And uh, next year, I'm going to be doing a, um, a story with Adam Warren. I'm going to do an empowered story. He gave me a character oh, wow. I wanted. I'm going to do Sister Spooky. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's going to be fun because I don't have to draw on model if I don't want to. Yay! Right. Well, you worked with Warren Ellis, too, in the past. Did you do one of his little books for Avatar yeah. way I, uh, back? In the I day. did. I have the artwork here for it, actually, because yeah. it's all in one box. How but, much uh, uh, is the pages for that story? Um, Are you selling? Do you I sell do sell them. Oh, yeah, I sell yeah. I don't want to die like the Collier Brothers under a great big pile of <laughs> Pages, really, because I do produce a lot. Um, I generally sell pages for 120, which makes people like Terry Moore scream and say I'm ruining it for everyone. You are kind of, but you know, listeners, if you are listening, uh, just you just heard a huge bargain. Come over to Carla's page. She's <laughs> such an amazing artist. Um, uh, it's such an amazing cartoonist, really. Uh, that was an interesting uh, uh, distinction that they made at the Harveys last night, wasn't it? You know, what? I mean. Uh, the fact that, you know, the difference between the best artist category and the best cartoonist category is that the best cartoonist is the one who does it all. Right, exactly. And yes. I, I often do, yes. Yes. Uh, well, at the Harveys, there was... Um, oh, boy, where to begin? There was actually some really great cartoonists in the best cartoonist category, such as Michael Kupperman, uh-huh. uh, the another great, uh, although nominated for some of his... Um, smaller work for higher work for Valiant, so that's a little con- con- controversial, I guess. Um, but uh, Carla, you, uh, how is the con for you here? This is always a great con. I love Baltimore con. Uh, because, you know, I, I don't move a lot of books necessarily, but I do meet new people. And uh, there are quite a lot of people who come to this show specifically to buy art. I think this crowd is pretty savvy. And, you know, anything that's been out for a little while, they've got, they know right. about. They're looking for a new thing, or they're looking for the special thing. 
They're looking for the handmade piece of artwork. They're looking for the special sketch. They're looking for that thing, you know, that's really, you know, right. grailed. And, uh, and I get it, you know, so in between selling art, uh, which is kind of, you know, long pauses, uh, I have plenty of time to go out and uh, meet some of my heroes and, uh, you know, run into people that I never thought I uh, would meet. Right. And, you know, meet writers that I want to work with and talk to publishers. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. It's pretty so. chill and cool here. Mm -hmm. I have to be honest. It's really, really nice. Um, but, uh, you know, what is going on with Finder? What's going on with Finder is it appears in eight-page chunks in uh, Dark Horse Presents. And I also, for those who are into that, uh, each month afterwards posted on my uh, Patreon for, uh, you know, for, for those who uh, are, are for those who, that is their thing. Um, which it might be the, easier for some to find it on Patreon. I might have to investigate that myself because, right. yes. Well, um... <laughs> Which means that since uh, Dark Horse Presents is a monthly book, that's a cap of pages, a maximum of 96 a year, which is like half of the size book that I, I'm used to putting out. So I've got a little bit of a dilemma. Do I go ahead and start publishing shorter stories and have a book out every year, you know, like mm. God intended? Or uh, <laughs> do I go ahead and stick to the kind of stories that I tend to come up with, which are, you know, twice that size? Because the current book uh, is called uh, Chase the Lady, and I'm essentially done with it. Right. Um, it's good to go. But the eighth chapter of 18, you know, I think just dropped in Dark Horse Presents. Right. Next year's my 20th anniversary. So this book only comes out monthly. Let's be right. So you only get the eight pages. So what you're saying is that even though you're finished with the story, it won't come out for another year. At least. Right. And next year's my 20th anniversary. And not having something special for your 20th anniversary is kind of like not throwing the bouquet at the wedding. Yeah, I mean, nobody yeah, wants yeah, this thing yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I either have to step on the gas and put and have that book come out earlier than it's intended to or come up with something else. Yes, yes. Well, uh, again, if you're listening, let's figure out that something else because it is third. What did you say, 20th anniversary? Oh, wow. Boy, I, Carl, I remember you were, when you were the best newcomer. <laughs> I think I gave you an award for it. Good God. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, uh -huh. you know, time flies. Don't uh, it. Don't yeah. it just. Yeah. You know, Carla, there's been a lot of talk lately about problems with the industry, you know, mostly on the business side, whether we need new distribution channels, new models. Do you, do you follow that at all? Are you like... Uh, I have gotten sadly out of touch with oh, that okay. since I... Uh, since I well, since I started doing so much more art and so much less work on the distributive side of things. But I know? mean, don't you think that almost is the, your own answer? It's like you're really too busy right now to worry about fretting, you know. Which so is, for you, for but you, it's probably a mistake on my part because when you're a self-publisher, you really do have to know every part of the business. Mm -hmm. The part of the business that I was not as good at as I needed to be to continue is marketing, self-marketing. Right. I mean, I can hand sell to anybody. But looking at the big picture and keeping the keeping things happening so that other people outside of shows know what is going on with me, that is what I was not good at. Right. And uh, so when, you know, continent shifted and slid in my personal life and it was, uh, you know, uh, some family concerns made it more difficult for me to keep on top as well as I was, which is to say not very well. Uh, it, it really was a benefit to me to have a publisher. Right. That was my reason for moving away from self-publishing, not because I thought it was a bad business model. Right, right, right. Um, but 
it does also mean that I, as a creator, am not as in touch with the uh, the, the details because I don't have to be. Right, that's true, and I think that you know there's so many levels. Uh, uh, there's so many different levels to the system, you know. So now you you know you have a little bit of security and you know not as much nitty gritty, which. Uh, you know, I might be biased, but I do think your time is best spent entertaining us with your gorgeous drawings and fascinating stories. Certainly <laughs> I am better at that than marketing. <laughs> well, then there's no shame. No, I'm not ashamed of it. I just, you know... Because you didn't hire someone. They hired you. Now yeah. you get money to do That's what you're true. good at. <laughs> so it sounds like a pretty good system. But, it's a pretty know. good match. And, yeah. you know, um, I it's, it's kind of perfect, really, because even though that means my book is coming out a bit slower than I might like, it means I've got plenty of time to, uh, to, to spread out and find some new dance partners. Right, right, you know, right. Um, when, while signing books for, uh, for the Archie Yearbook here in Baltimore, I met a bunch of the writers over there, and, uh, you know, heck, I could do Archie. I would have fun doing Archie. So, you never know. You never know. I, I, like, I like oddball projects, you know, or things that are oddball compared to my work, you know. I mean, I've, uh, I've done My Little Pony. I've done Avatar. Uh, you know, I would love to do a Steven Universe concert. Because ah, uh, right. I loves, loves, loves me some Steven Universe. All right. Well, boom, Archie, please. Uh-huh. Uh, you yep, know, yep, if yep. you're listening to this podcast, you can come over, buy some really cool Carla Steven Deal art, support her on her Patreon, and then you can hire her to write some stories and draw some stories and draw them too. You know, so pretty much the complete package here. Well, Carla, we're going to let you get back to to interacting with your fans here and here at Baltimore Comic Con. But thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us. Thanks for having me, baby. Welcome to more to come. PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. I am Heidi McDonald, the graphic novels review editor of Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. You can check us out on social media everywhere at, at PW Comics Week. And today uh, we are talking to Ben Catcher, the Guggenheim Fellowship winner, the MacArthur Genius Grant winner, the author of Cheap Novelties, The Pleasures of Urban Decay, with Julius Nipple, real estate photographer. Yeah, uh, Knipple. Knipple, okay. Knipple. All right. Well, that, well, you've just answered one of our great questions. So, uh, anyway, Ben, it's an it's an honor to, to be speaking with you. Uh, Thank you for having me on your yes, show. Yes, of course, of course. Well, you are... Uh, you know, this book is just out from Drawn a Quarterly, and it's a collection of some of your early alt comic strips. But it's actually a reissue, correct? Yeah, it's a and a repackaging. Uh, the original book was a tiny penguin paperback that I never really liked. I mean, it was almost illegible. It was that small. So it's It's the size it should be, and it's designed the way I sort of. Uh, like it. I mean, so yeah, it's a it's a better edition. Right. Well, this started out as as a comic strip in uh, was it the Village Voice where it first appeared. No, it started in the New York Press. Oh, really? That was a a new paper that that had just started in New York City, and the editor uh, was a fellow named Russ Smith who came from <laughs> Baltimore. He ran the Baltimore City paper, and he moved to New York and wanted to start a new paper. And w- instead of picking up the few existing uh, alternative weekly strips, he decided to commission all new strips. So it was a, 
I mean, it's, I can thank him for that. I don't think I would have ever thought of doing a weekly newspaper mm -hmm. strip. Well, what were, you, what were you doing at that time? I was doing the occasional strip. I did some work in Raw. I, I self-published a magazine. Well, there was no alternative comics world in that time. It was, you know, about 16 artists. Mm -hmm. There were very few people doing this kind of work and uh, I was working making a living doing typesetting and comics was kind of a, a sideline at that point and uh, so yeah it was uh, I mean I, I knew com newspaper comics and the, 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 the comics that were very visible at that time, and in a lot of the papers, were Linda Barry, and Matt Groening, right? Uh, I think um, Stephen. That strip called Stephen. Sure, Doug by Doug Allen, Allen right? Yeah. Uh, there were, you know, it was a handful of strips, and a lot of these papers were running the same strips. There may have been some local strips, but anyway, uh, I I kind of agreed to do it because it seemed like an interesting challenge and I, I somehow thought it would be I would have designed it as a continuing story and then the night before the first strip was due I decided that that was uh, a bad idea that no one would follow a strip week to week and I made it self-contained stories and um, and that's how it it went on. I mean, I don't remember how many years that strip. That strip may have run for about, could it be eight years? And then I sort of changed the name to, um, the. Uh, I think it was went from that to the Cardboard Valise. Right. And then it became Hotel and Farm. And then it became uh, Shoehorn Technique. So when I got tired of working under that, that title or whatever the uh, thematic uh, restrictions I thought that's that that strip had I would just change the name mm -hmm. and keep running it so you know this is pre-internet and mm -hmm. this is it was it lived in newspapers and in boxes on the streets of New York and people would pick it up every week and read it some of them would some people would clip it or Xerox it and keep it. I mean, it was, and I, you would hear from a, a lot of readers. I mean, there was um, a real, uh, it was part, it was a, a weekly utility. You know, as you picked up your weekly newspaper and, you know, it was mm -hmm. full of articles and it was full of ads. It's also before Craigslist and it was full of, you know, ads for um, music venues and film. And the comic strip just happened to be there. So uh, when I'd hear from people, I would say in those years, the only common denominator they had is that they, they would often say, you know, I, have, I don't read comics, I don't have a particular interest in comics, but I like your strip. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my readership. They were not... They were picking up a weekly newspaper. They were not a going into comic shops. Right. Well, given the vast amount of uh, 
praise and awards that you've won, uh, you know, since this strip came out, I, I think it is safe to say that, uh, you know, it has found an audience that is appreciative of it. And certainly, it, you know, the level is, is astonishing. Uh, you know, the early, like all, it's funny that you say that you've changed the name of the strip as the, as the focus has changed, but but if I were to to encompass it in a sentence, which is actually the hardest thing possible to do with your work, there's certainly kind of an elegiac and somewhat uh, absurdist invented history that maybe is more truthful than the real history. <laughs> is that a fair way yeah. to put it? <laughs> Good. Explain <laughs> it in one sentence. But you know, there's. As though I've been very lucky. I've had really great writers uh, write about my work over the years. But um, really, in in the realm of comics, you just pick it up and read it. And, you know, it could take a few uh, installments to get into the the, the sensibility of the strip. But uh, it's, sort of, it's a self-explanatory form. It sort of tells you what it's about. Some people looked at it or would sort of ignore it for a year and then just start reading it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, the thing is, it was there and it was, it was free and it was in their face every week. Right. And, uh, you know, that's how people stumbled on it. It's, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, it was a kind of a monopolistic situation. There was sort of two main weekly papers in New York. Most cities have one of these alternative weeklies. And so you had a captive audience. It wasn't uh, like they had to find you, you know, on the internet. Mm -hmm. That was it. You had those two choices. Bookstores were also, uh, you know, it was a kind of a closed world. You were the major publishers got into the major bookstores. Alternative comics kind of hard. You'd have to really search for them. Right. Well, what they was were, it... They existed at all. What was it like working with Raw? I mean, you know, this is... It's interesting that well, you talk about was, that because it seems like that a lot of the, the cartoonists who were in Raw did go on to, like, do alt comics and eventually graphic novels like, you know, Charles Burns and Linda Barry and so on. Yeah, even... And Kim Deitch had a weekly uh, strip right. for a while. And Gary yeah. Panter, he's another one. Yeah. Yeah, all of these, uh, Mark Beyer, we were trying to figure out how to piece together a living. And even in this kind of what now looks like a monopolistic, like we had the market to ourselves, even mm-hmm. then it was hard to do it. So, uh, so wait, so your question was about Raw, though, It right? was, yeah, I guess it's like, what was uh, it like working, well, you know, with that group? Yeah, I was aware of underground comics. I was sort of in college or beginning. I don't know exactly what moment in college, maybe before college. So I was aware of that. I was aware of Arcade, and I was following this work. And so I never submitted anything to Arcade or those earlier underground comics. So it was a great... uh, um, uh, kind of, I 
you know, it was this great thing to hear that 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 world. I mean, specifically art at that time. Mm-hmm. He was the editor, was interested in my work. He saw it in a self-published uh, magazine, uh, the first issue of Picture Story. It was called, and it was on a newsstand, you know, around the corner from where he lived, uh, a store that would take. Zines on commission. That's the only right. way he would have seen it, and um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it was like you know, everybody has some great break in their career if they have a career. <laughs> that was one of these great breaks. Well, what was what was I? I you know, it's funny you you. you you know, talk about books that you put together. I, I I think one of the most interesting experiences I had with your work was um, I was on a trip to Europe and I grabbed a bunch pile of books to read on the plane. And one of the books I picked was the cardboard release. And I ended up being stuck at the airport for two days. And I, I, you know, I don't mean this is a put down of your work, but yours was probably the worst possible book I could have bought. <laughs> yeah, well, that's. Is that where were you stuck at the airport? Oh, that's a long, horrible story. That it, it, there was a not by there was, choice. There was no. There was a little bit of snow in Paris, and they they couldn't uh, it just create it. It was at the holidays. So it created what, havoc. Right. Right. And so why was it that a bad well, choice? Well, it was. Because well, it was. It was that. I think you've said in interviews that each one of your strips is meant to be read once a week. It's like the content yeah. of them is so. Um, concentrated and so powerful. It's like it's not like you could you could immerse yourself in it, but then your your mind goes off on all these tangents and. and oh, I thought it was because it's about travel. Well, that was it the other. That was the other thing. The utility of travel. <laughs> yes, and, yes. And I thought that's why you meant it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a collection of weekly strips, mm-hmm. and yeah, by definition, it's, it will be this dense very uh, concise. Each one was meant to stand by themselves. Mm-hmm. Although that has a vague continuity in it. So that's mm-hmm. a little different, that strip. Yeah. It does have a continuity. Mm-hmm. But, um... Well, it's an amazing I book. I don't mean the, no, no, no. I, it's it's a great book, and I, I, I'm a huge fan of your work. It's just it's just ironic, and it, it was also the travel aspect. I think of it where I was, I was you know stuck in this airport for two days, sleeping on a piece of cardboard. And <laughs> little did I know, little did I know. But but I, I I mean you do like how do you you know I very rarely ask people how do you get your ideas because that's the dumbest question of all time. But I feel like it your case it's it's justified because because you you get you know, in your work it is you take like maybe the teeniest little iota of something that exists and then you play out this like you know poetry about it this fantasy i mean how do you get i mean what inspires you ben well these um stories have their uh genesis i think in the observed world, and then having dreams about that world, and uh, and when you do a weekly strip, I mean this uh, you know um, necessity drives you to great lengths of invention, <laughs> and so uh, it's like asking the electric company, how do you make all this electric every week? <laughs> they figure out. I mean, I have. Um, that's part of the kind of the 
the craft level of making comics is you figure out what kind of comic strip you want to make and how you go about doing that on a you know endless weekly i would one time i was doing you know two weeklies and a monthly at one time so it's a lot of stuff to come up with mm-hmm. and you um you devise these uh sort of techniques for um Inspiring, just finding inspiration in, in everything. I mean, everything was a, a possible subject for mm-hmm. a story. Right. So, I, I mean, it's not... That's how I did it. You know, whether how I... If I succeeded <laughs> in making interesting strips on that kind of... Uh, under that kind of pressure, that's partly... Uh, technique, partly the kinds of questions I would ask myself when I'm writing these stories. I mean, if you ask if you ask yourself the wrong questions, or not any questions at all, you'll, you'll get a different kind of story. Hmm. So, um, you know, and if you look at them, you can see what those questions are, what those uh, interests are. And, uh, but, you know, I'd put it off. I would work on these things all, all week. I'd be thinking about it and rejecting hundreds of ideas. And then at the end of the week, I'd take the best idea, and that was the strip. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, discarding of sort of bad ideas or ideas. Or ideas I'd have to come back to a year later, and I'd figure them out. Some... Ideas, I just, I just couldn't figure them out. I couldn't figure out how to make a good strip about a certain subject. And I would just put it aside and say, I'll come back to this later. But uh, there are, you know, I had these, these. Um, it's kind of a rhythm you get. Well, anything that's done, any journalist who's writing every week has a system. You ask these questions about your subject, and you do your best to answer them. So there are great investigative journalists, and then there are people who just rewrite press releases, <laughs> you know, and they're boring journalists. Right. So that's it's the same in making comic strips. You ask the deepest, most uh, interesting questions you can ask, and then you... I mean, in the realm of fiction, you invent the answer. Right, right. I well, don't have to find the answer. I just invent it. Well, when you when you say what's a, a good idea, like, like, you know, with cheap novelties, um, and, you know, Julius Knippel, the original idea was that, you know, he he was a real estate photographer, which is an, not an actual profession, I, I'm guessing. Oh, no, it is. There, oh. I've met lots of people ah. before digital photography. Uh, real estate um, companies that wanted to sell buildings, brokers used to hire people to take photographs of the buildings. There was I met many real estate. Ah, okay. They'd go out with in the old days with really good uh, large format cameras that where they could correct the perspective, and they would do. Uh, that was a profession. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. so you know, it's, it's, I didn't make that up. Ah, okay. Um, well, you do. There are a lot of things that 
you know, one of the uh, subtexts, well, not even subtext, but I mean, one of the texts of this book is um, the disappearance of the cheap, you know, the stores that sell all the tchotchkes, you know, uh, in, in New York. Novelties, yeah. Novelties, yes, and in Manhattan. And yeah. I mean, when this book first came out, which I guess was the 80s, you know, this might have seemed like something that was happening, whereas, you know, now here in 2016, I mean, that's all anyone I know talks about is uh, how fast all of these old New York things are, are disappearing. Yeah, there was a toy and novelty district around 23rd Street and 5th Avenue uh, when I was growing up. And it's now there's another one. It sort of moved uptown, and it's more about uh, its imports uh, mm -hmm. from Asia and India. And uh, there's still a cheap novelty district in New York. Yeah, so it's vanishing it's quickly. Sort of it's import-export around... Like, if you go up 6th Avenue, like 28, 29, 30th off uh, Broadway, there are hundreds of these uh, wholesale stores selling. Yeah, have Things you been... that I would think, you know, they're not classic uh, Johnson Smith novelty items, but they're cheap novelties. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's still uh, something of that. What do you think is important you? about that? What do you think is important about that to to New York, to its cultural fabric, to the cheap novelties? What? Oh, well, small storefront businesses, it just makes it interesting to take a walk. I mean, when you go to these cities where everything is one sort of steel and glass high-rise and you have no idea what's going on upstairs, it's, it's incredibly boring to walk around those cities. So, yeah, it's the texture of the street life. It makes it uh, an interesting place to some would walk. Some would say that even... I, I live not far from the district you're talking about, and it is, it is, beginning, to, uh, it is beginning to shrink a bit, you know? There's a lot of high-end hotels opening around there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, it was the, flo the flower district, sort yep. of. It graded into the flower district. Yeah, I mean... That's re that's um, <clears throat> real estate, you know. If they think they can put a uh, get more rent by having a more upscale tenant, mm -hmm. people will do that. But I mean, the uh, the end game is kind of a boring city. Mm -hmm. you know? No yeah. one will want to come there to stay in these hotels at some point. Well, they'll want to come to have um, you know artisanal water and. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's you can get that everywhere. <laughs> There's a kind of general, generic, um, upscale neighborhood in lots of cities. Sometimes it's an old downtown that was revitalized in a kind of very artificial way. But um, it's... Uh, it's funny. You that's available. You know, I was just in... Um, in Decatur, uh, Georgia, for that book festival, which is a very old city. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, but the, the down the center of it, it's kind of a, on the edge of Atlanta. But it it's tries to have this kind of street life with lots of small restaurants, small uh, stores selling novelties and kind of quasi-art objects. And books, a lot of bookstores... And, you know, 
I mean, some of it is is new, recent. Some of it is is in old buildings that were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much of it, what the historic continuity is. I don't know that much about Did it. Did you walk around? Kind of, what? Did you walk around a lot? Uh, well, not that much. I was only there for a day. So, mm-hmm. but uh, it's you know it's heavily. It's a pretty much a car culture. People are driving into it and then leaving. But you can walk around within this old center, kind of around a courthouse. And I think there's an old, there are old residential parts of mm. it. Sounds and nice. people, I mean, developers, they, they, they think this, they try to construct these things. They don't, um, I mean, New York was constructed by people trying mm. to develop a, a port city. And, Robert uh, Moses, you know, too. Well, I mean, I'm talking about from the beginning, in mm-hmm. you know, 1800, people, would, when they devised the, the grid of modern Manhattan. But uh, the thing is, these plans, uh, today these plans are on, on a global, gigantic corporate scale, and mm-hmm. they can be kind of by backfire. And that people think, well, you open an art museum, and that's going to bring people, and you put in a few <laughs> restaurants, and that might bring people. But uh, the fabric of New York <clears throat> was a, yeah, it was a much more complicated thing. It was mixed use. It was people living, and there were many, many different small light industries. And not so light industry, right? You know, the industry. Have you been? Have Have you been to the High Line? Because it strikes me that in talking to uh, you, that the High Line is about the most Ben Catcher thing brought into the real world. Really? Yeah, we I don't know. I think it falls into that category of what they call zombie urbanism. This mm-hmm. kind of you take a dead, unused part of a city and repurpose it for tourists to walk around. So it's not a place, I, pa- I pass it every day and I've never had an impulse to go up and look. I've seen mm. photographs of it, but no, I think, I think it's, I, I don't think it's, um, I think it was part of the real estate boom in that area where they said, should we knock this thing down? Or how do we make this kind of a tourist destination? And yeah, it doesn't really well, uh, and now it's brought in all these strange foreign cockroaches. <laughs> but anyway, the thing is, um, repurposing old buildings, you know, well, it's not a building, this was trains that, that brought, they were, it was a freight line coming into that part of the city. That was interesting. But <laughs> it was, you know, a lot of industry being served by a train. And I, I don't, I think it stopped running before my time. I, I don't remember it running, but I know that whole part of the west side of Manhattan. Right, there the were docks. Was a there were trains full of meat. Trains. Yeah, there was a meat district on 14th Meat Packing, and there was um, all kinds of um, businesses serving the shipping lines on the west side docks. And so, you know, this wasn't a tourist destination. It was a functioning uh, light industrial part of the city. So the High Line is uh, something for 
idle tourists to wander around. Well, I mean, it, they're looking at the basically looking at themselves because there's nothing functioning there. It's just uh, like any build, any old piece of architecture that you repurpose, it's lost its purpose. Mm. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, they could have knocked it down, I, but that would have been worse, probably. But it's, uh, it's not a. It's it's going along with the idea of making that part of the city into a uh, hotel and a museum and high end clothing store district. Oh yes, I think making if- it, trying to bring back, make it an affordable place for people to live right. and work. I think if you so, could make a strip out of it, though, I think if you did a sto- like if you did a story about, uh, you know, like uh, the, the people saying, "Hey, there's an abandoned railroad here. Let's turn it into a tourist attraction." I, I, yeah, I think I've that done would many. Be a real, I've yeah. done a f- several strips about <laughs> yeah. that kind of urban design. Yes, project. yes, yes. That's, uh, that's. I forget the name of it. There's kind of a standard thing. You take a dead <clears throat> downtown. And you open, it's usually they open an art venue. And an art venue, like a museum with a, with a place to eat and some shops. And they think, you know, that's how you revitalize a city. And uh, it's um, that light, a lot of light manufacturing has left, you know, this country. And that there are no jobs to support any kind of a middle class in these cities anymore. That's what you'd have to bring back. But uh, that's usually not in a developer's scheme. Right. It's kind of how to, how to go with the flow. And the flow, as you see, is, you know, the, the, <laughs> the kind of cities we have, these kind of, uh, kind of uh, vacant uh, corporate-based cities. I mean, that's who can afford to build things, and that's who can. That is, that's true. And it, and it was always like, I mean, it's not that that's any different. It was always like that. It's just it hasn't, it hadn't reached this sort of end game where there's nothing more to do. Mm-hmm. It was all, you know, the, the theater district, all of these things were corporate inventions. Smaller, maybe smaller corporate, not maybe multinational inventions, but smaller co- corporations. Somebody had to think they could make money. They didn't. The whole thing was built around business. So, uh, except it hadn't reached this kind of sterile uh, end game where mm-hmm. there's like nothing there. So, how do you bring tourists? You put more of nothing there and right. hope they come. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, more of nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a it's a sad thing. But you know, and it. Happens. This is all over the world, you know. People, these great historic cities that sort of get into these uh, position where they they could be ruined by too much tourism. They have to decide whether they want to be functioning places or they want to be uh, tourist destinations. Right. Right. Places to go to have dinner and then you get out of there and you don't even want to live there. <laughs> anyway, it's. Uh, Mm. That's uh, for uh, but anyway. Yeah, that's that's what yeah. I think. About it. Well, interesting. Well, let me let me switch topics just a little bit. Now, you're currently an assistant professor at Parsons, correct? 
so, I think I'm an associate. Associates, pardon me, associate professor. Higher. Yes, you higher, higher level. Academic ranking. Yes. What yeah. do you What do you <clears throat> teach? And I, I'm also currently the director of the illustration program. We oh, rotate okay. through that every three years. I'm now also directing it. So I, I teach um, a graduate level course in comics which is out of the writing program. It's kind of part of the writing students who want to make comics take that course. So it's not really a graduate-level writing course because some of them are, they have a lot of experience writing but not making comics. So it's kind of um, an introductory course for experienced writers in making comics. Mm-hmm. And then I teach... Uh, senior thesis in the undergraduate program. Mm-hmm. There is no graduate program in illustration in my school. Huh. No, what... Undergraduate uh, senior what, thesis. What do you see now? I, I, probably when you were scrabbling around as a cartoonist in the New York press back in the 80s, uh, you know, the idea that uh, a school like Parsons would be offering a lot of comic studies might have seemed unlikely. I mean... Yeah, it was... It, 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 It's a very old illustration. One of the original programs of Parsons, Mm. I think, was illustration. But it was more magazine, book illustration, editorial. Not so much the artist as author, which is how we try to think about it. Mm -hmm. And that's where comics comes in. And, um, you know, the school, it still has these old academic divisions. It's still a writing program where you don't make pictures and there's a painting program where you don't use much writing I mean, you can some, some postmodern art uses both but uh, so we are, we're the kind of the program that brings those two disciplines together in the form of comics we also do uh, animation is in our program children's books um you know, editorial illustration, some toy design, all of those things fall in the illustration program. So what what have you seen in the changes in the kind of students that you're getting since you started? Has well, that, yeah, that, the kind of students we're getting has to do with the uh, expense of private universities in America. That doesn't necessarily have to do with what we're teaching, but... Um, well, one thing that's happened is that sort of after Mouse, comics have received this kind of uh, validation, I say, in the culture. So people accept that there are right. serious comics that should be taken as seriously as any uh, literature or film or theater. And um, the da- you know, one of the dangers of that is that p- there's a kind of an academic solution. To, this is what, how you make a comic. You look at Mouse, you make a comic that looks like that or tries to look like that, uh, deals with a serious subject, and it should be taken seriously. And um, that, the danger in that is that uh, people are not questioning or critiquing right. the, their model, they're accepting a model. That's the academic model. There it is. There's the solution. They just replicate that 
variation and it'll make a serious comic strip. And uh, the way art and literature works is somebody has to come along and critique that model and say, well, that might have been good, you know, at one point, but we, the comics maybe can be something else mm-hmm. now. And there's endless critiquing, you know, Robert Crumb, that generation were critiquing uh, sort of early newspaper comics, well, comics in general, that didn't allow you to talk about adult themes. They said, that's what we want to do with comics. And, you know, in the 70s, when I came around, I was sort of critiquing underground comics. I said, comics, well, they don't have to be just about uh, sex and drugs. They can be about them. <laughs> so every generation really has to critique the, what they, the model that's put before them. And the danger of academic acceptance is that the critique stops. Mm-hmm. And that's when art becomes kind of academic. And that's a danger in that that I see. And there were people say, well, I just want to I mean, there was comics were made before that for an apprentice system. You go work for a cartoonist, you do his lettering, or you do some menial work for him, and then you could take over the strip. And the idea was just keep it going. And a few of those apprentices went on to critique the person they worked for and mm-hmm. came up with interesting strips. Uh, most of them didn't. They just had a job. There was a, there was a lot of money in newspaper comics, and they just didn't want to rock the boat, so they kept going. And uh, now, when you're teaching comics in a university, you think the first thing you do is question. You know, what are these things we're looking at that people say they're either terrible or they're great or they're kind of media? What are they? Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do in our classes is critique comics and mm-hmm. say, well, these these were good solutions, but you know, there, there are other solutions. How do you? How do you? Different s- times, historical times. Right. Moments. Well, there's so many more. Um, you know, young. I, I I always say that I think a lot of people who would have gone into illustration back, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, now, because really the illustration field, there's just not a lot of work there, so they don't really have that much to do. So a lot of them are going... Well, yeah, I know, they're going into comics. Yeah. Well, I think it's more people who would have been poets and novelists <laughs> who are going into comics. The people who do illustration are not, tend to not be interested in storytelling. They want the story given to them, and they want to add some visual angle to it, or... Mm. Now, those people still want to do kind of decorative illustration or work with a given text. Mm-hmm. I so we're, get, we're getting people from every other field. We're getting people studying anthropology and people studying history and political science who like the form of comics and think they want to do something. Do you that think form. that's a good? Do you think that's good for comics? Yes. I think it's the only way good comics will ever be made. They can't be made by people who only read comics. Right. That's deadly. As you, you know, people say, well, how come all the um, 
Harvey Award winners. Why don't they ever make it into the uh, Best American Comics anthology? Right. <laughs> well, that's why. They're sort of replicating themselves. And uh, that kind of inbreeding leads to, uh, you know, insanity or, or kind of retardation. It's just not questioning itself. Enough. Right. You know, as so I'm talking to you, an email just popped up on my screen, which uh, is about the this year's class of MacArthur Fellows to be announced. So uh, now, you were a MacArthur Fellow, were you not? Right, a long time ago, yeah, mm -hmm. 2000. What did that, but that with that becomes a pretty sizable cash grant that allows you to it really... Uh, it's not cash, it's very much on the books. Okay. It's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> a year, uh, quarterly, how does it work? I think it's a quarterly... It says here uh, a stipend. stipend. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, it, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's not cash. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, it, but my point is, is like you have enough, you know, you have an income that allows you to pursue. Yeah, it takes, they spread it over five years. Right. So what did that allow you to do with your work and with uh, your... I did a lot of theater. I was able to subsidize some of these theater projects where I needed some money. I mean, I just didn't think about money. And I, mainly I'd say theater. Comics tend to be a pretty cheap thing to do. So I would, you know, cover my living expenses, and then I had money to um, add to the uh, the kinds of uh, budgets that I need to do these theater projects. I mean, no, it's a great thing for five years not to worry about making a living. <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't teaching full time at the time, so I was really piecing together a pretty precarious living. And, um, yeah, it takes the pressure off, but then, you know, the five years ends, and then you're back to thinking about how do I make a living. <laughs> um, well, what, can you talk a little bit about your theater pieces? Uh, you know, are they musicals, yeah, correct? They're, uh, well, theater, yeah, since it's the first place that text and image came together, you know, before print, of any kind, it's, um, that's what it is. It uses uh, sung through, uh, it's, all of the text is sung mm -hmm. by live singers in a live band, and it uses uh, projected scenic design. And, uh, and it's based on stories, usually they're based on, I would go through, my work and find stories that I thought I could expand upon, that I thought maybe there was room for that. Some of them are original stories mm -hmm. that were just invented for the, this music theater form. And, uh, you know, it's the ultimate luxury art form. You have to, everybody gets paid. A venue has to provide the space and the, all of the technical um, equipment and it happens for a few nights and it ends there's nothing left to sell yes. so it's like throwing a party and <laughs> it's over even if it runs you know for a month the one the, the last version of the slug bearers played at an off-broadway theater and had a pretty long run like eight weeks but then it's you know it's an eight week event and it's over and um that's it's, it's a very ephemeral art form, but it's 
very intriguing art form. The, the audience is there sitting in front of you while it's happening. So it, when you make comics, the readers uh, come to your work possibly right. 10 years later. You're not around to watch them respond. Well, so you I, get that immediate feedback in the theater. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I, I know we started late, but, but one more question for you also, which is uh, about the Comic Picture Symposium that you run at Parsons. Yeah, uh, which the is, New York Comics and Picture Stories. Which symposium. is awesome. I've I've not been to as many as I should, but every time I go, I have such a uh, wonderful, enlightening time. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? And uh, yeah, that started actually as a class uh, in what was called the Occupy University at that moment in New York, um, Occupy Wall Street. A group of people said, well, let's also, rather than worrying about uh, student debt, we should start a uh, kind of an open, free university. And people would, you know, the, the question was how to finance it. It was financed by people contributing their labor and mm -hmm. running these classes. So the one of them, the one I proposed was this ongoing uh, class or some lecture series or symposium about comics and related mm -hmm. text image work, animation and children's books, all these things. And uh, it start, so that's how it started. And people donated their time and came and gave lectures. And at some point after, I think, two years, um, I started, it started running just out of Parsons. And then it became something that the illustration program had the funds to finance. So now we can pay speakers. But it's still free mm -hmm. and open to the public. So I would say if you attend, you know, 15 of them or 30 of them, it's like a, a free graduate school seminar class on text image work. I mean, they're amazing people coming. Oh, it's incredible. You just check, uh, there's a a website with a, this semester's schedule. Uh, yes. That's how it started, and it's it still is running. Every Tuesday at 7 o'clock, I believe? Yeah, and usually uh, at 2 West 13th Street in the Bark Room, but sometimes other locations. Uh, one, uh, occasionally another day. So you have to check the website. Right. And then the week before the... Um, Comic Arts Brooklyn were doing sort of a whole four days of events. Oh, wow. That's November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And then the 4th is uh, Pictoplasma, which is that uh, character design festival that moves around the world. Oh, so wow. Conference that's happening Friday. And then um, Saturday, the book sale part of the... Uh, Brooklyn Comic Arts will happen. Well, that's, At least that's the plan. Well, that plan sounds incredible because I know that they had decided not not to do panels during Comic Arts Brooklyn, which is sad because it's such a great, um, you know, wonderful programming, and they have so many yeah, wonderful guests. Yeah, so the guests. panels will be running out of uh, Parsons. Mm. That just happens. They they will. It's il also it's Illustration Week in New York, and there are a lot of events going on through these 
um, the Society of Illustrators and uh, American Illustration and things like that oh, happening wow. that week. So a lot of people are, are in town for those events and for the Comic Arts Brooklyn. So, well, well, if yeah, it should be interesting. Uh, we're bringing in um, David Kunzel, who is the author of that uh, great uh, two-volume early comic strip study. And he's oh, yeah. Great, uh, he's coming in to do two lectures on um, November 1st and November 3rd. And November 2nd is um, uh, David Sandlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Painter, printmaker, and cartoonist is doing the presentation. Well, so this, that's the lineup for that. This week. sounds fascinating and something to look forward to, and equally something to look forward to. If you have not seen it, seriously, check out Cheap Novelties. It is, in addition to being uh, a wonderful tribute to vanishing urban spaces uh, all over the world. Uh, it's also just fantastic storytelling, and um, you know, it's it's really one of the great unique comic strips uh, that's ever been done. And um, Ben, you are well deserving of all your genius grants. <laughs> um, it's just they don't call it that; they I, call the MacArthur. I know that's just the journalistic name for it. It's not in the, It's just the MacArthur Fellowship. I know, I know, but but it's the, you know, us journalists, we have to come up with a snappy name for things. I know. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time, and uh, you know, again, check out great. Cheap Novelties by Ben Catcher, and um, have yeah, a great day. Yeah, I look forward to saying hello at the uh, comics and I, I will see you there. Alright. Yeah, take and care. And there will be more to come. <laughs>